The reading is uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 16, and chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. So we are three weeks into a sermon series where we're looking at these um, letters that Jesus sent to seven churches in modern-day Turkey. And it may seem to some of you that this is a really odd thing for us to study. We're looking at the last book of the Bible, which some of you know is kind of the preview of all the weird stuff about the end of the world, and it may seem we're sort of mired and stuck in the boring parts. You're like, some of you may be like, come on, you know, let's stop reading these other people's mail and get on to the juicy parts of the book of Revelation. You know, all the the wild stuff about lightning and uh, the prostitute who's pregnant and the serpents and all that kind of stuff. And some of you may be really frustrated that we're in here. And I would tell you that if you start reading the book of Revelation, and you're tempted just to skip from chapter 1, which is the intro to the book, to chapter 4, where the juicy parts begin, then you're just actually parroting, you're just mimicking what the culture does with the church all the time. See, chapters 2 and 3, which are letters to churches, we kind of, if you're reading through this book, you may have a a tendency to want to skip, and that's actually what the culture wants to do with the church. Church is viewed as boring. It's viewed as 
not that compelling or exciting, and we'd rather just kind of do what we do with the book of Revelation. Let's just skip it. And I realize that the church isn't very impressive. It was uh, about five years ago that one NHL um, player, one hockey player, said, you know those born-again Christians? I wish they'd never been born. And I, I, I hear those kind of cynical statements, maybe not with such venom, but I hear cynical statements about that from both people who aren't part of the church and people who often have been part of the church. And unfortunately, sometimes knowledge doesn't help this. Some of you have a lot of experience with churches. Some of you have stories where you're like, I've seen terrible things go down in churches. And the more you know, it doesn't make you more hopeful. It makes you more cynical. Right? Some of you have those experiences. And yet what we find in this book is Jesus is both painfully honest about the failings of the church, and yet he's passionately devoted to the church. Here's the one guy who knows everything about these seven churches, and he's not cynical. He's not cynical. He looks at these and he says, I know exactly your problems, and I am so committed to you. And I, I think that we need to hear this. We need to hear this view of Jesus' body, of God's people, about what you're doing here this morning. And today we're looking at a church in Pergamum. And I think it's funny, Jesus tells these people, he says, I know where you live. I know where you live. And I'll just, a little time out, if you're a single guy, this is not a good pickup line, right? You know, hey, let's go out for coffee, I know where you live. A little creepy, right? It's a little creepy when Jesus says this, I know where you live. And but actually, when coming out of Christ's mouth, what is he saying? He's saying, I know your circumstances. These people lived in a very difficult city, in a very difficult place. Um, things had been bad in Pergamum for some time. At this, at this moment in history, there's a man named Domitian, who is the emperor. And let me just tell you a little story, of, a little snapshot of this guy's character. Really a winner. Um, Domitian was in the arena. This is a uh, story, story from his from his reign. So he's in the arena at the gladiatorial games. And he's watching the games, and his hero, his team, loses. And there's some people in another part of the stadium who are cheering for the guy who actually won. And Domitian turns to his guard, sitting next to him, and says, go have all those people executed. And they were all executed because they rooted against one of the gods, the emperor. That's where these people lived. They lived at a time where it wasn't just it, it, the, the, the person who was the supreme ruler of the, of the kingdom wasn't just viewed as a politician, as another guy. He was viewed as, an, as a god. And so early Christians, you may not know this, were called atheists. Do you know why they were called atheists? Because they refused to worship the Roman pantheon of gods, Zeus and Hera and all that crowd. And they also refused to say... The tagline of the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so these Christians would say, no, Jesus is Lord. And when they would say that, that wasn't just a statement of personal faith. That was viewed not only as unpopular, but unpatriotic. And so in this passage, we read about a man, Antipas, who, this is the story of Antipas, and I'm, I'm not trying to be graphic or gross, but this man refused to say Caesar is Lord. And so at the temple to Zeus in that city, they sewed him up 
into a skin of an ox and slow roasted him over a fire. It's called brazening. Terrible way to die. These people, when Jesus says, I know where you live, he's like, things are bad. Things are bad. These were people who were brave and who were courageous and faithful and paid a price for it. And yet, I think it's surprising, don't you, that Jesus could have hard words for these people. I heard a phrase recently, and some of you know this uh, cliche, hard words make hard people, soft words make soft people. We're a culture that says a lot of soft words. Jesus has surprisingly hard words for this church. Surprisingly hard words for a church that has been faithful, as he says here, he commends them for being faithful in the midst of trial and suffering. And you know, if, if, if you're like me, I read this and I'm like, what, really? Jesus, you should have hugs and high fives for these people. They've been through some bad stuff. And yet, Jesus says, no. These people are faithful over here and may be faithful over here, but there's some areas where they're not faithful. And let me liken it to a marriage. So, so suppose there's a husband and a wife, and the, the husband is a faithful husband. You know, he keeps his vows. He's, uh, he doesn't cheat on his wife. He uh, speaks in public highly of his wife. But behind closed doors, he doesn't listen to her. He doesn't care for what she has to say. He doesn't give her attention. He doesn't take her words seriously. What would you say of that man? Is he a faithful husband? You say, well, faithful over here and faithful over here, but not faithful over here. And that's what Jesus is speaking to with this in this church. We would say, look, these are the, the heroes of the Bible, faithful even in the face of death. And you read, you read other parts of Scripture. You read 1 Corinthians 13, famous love chapter, read at lots of weddings, and listen to what it says. Look, even if you give your body to the flames... Even if you're faithful to death, but you don't have love. If, if you rationalize some of what it, away, some of what it means to love God, then you have nothing. Right? Faithfulness in one area, Jesus is like, that's good, I commend you for this. But I'm looking for faithfulness in another area. Like the husband with the wife, I'm asking you to listen to my words and to take them seriously. To listen to my words and to take them seriously. These people in Pergamum were respectable modernists. They're like us. They're they're respectable people. They, They say, look, you know, we love the Jewish Messiah. We're holding, you know, but holding on to this black and white understanding of what is truth, do we have to buy into all of that? These are respectable modernists. This is why this is probably the most truly American church that Jesus writes a letter to. A truly American church. They're they're people who were all about spiritual zeal, but not about spiritual truth. And I wonder, you know, a couple weeks ago, when I started off this sermon series, I preached about the the letter to the book and to to the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus, you know, they'd lost their first love. And I, I talked about spiritual zeal, about having right feeling. And some of you came up and you're like, high five, Bradford, man, that was awesome. I need to hear that. But today, as we look at a church 
that's lost their saint, lost their commitment to truth, to doctrinal purity, I wonder if I'll get any high fives. Because this isn't popular with us. This isn't popular. I, I hear people say things like this. You know, people who care about doctrine are boring. Or have you ever heard uh, someone describe the pastoral training center for, pa- for, for the theological training center for pastors, which is called seminary, as cemetery? Right? That's a common joke because there's the idea that thinking too much about our faith robs us of spiritual zeal. Or, or I, I think about this. You know, people say, I don't care about doctrine. Give me Jesus. Not realizing to say that statement is a theological statement because you have to say, well, which Jesus? You're talking about the Jesus of your own imagination? You're talking about the Jesus that biblical scholars would like to kind of rip apart and, and splice apart? Are you talking about Jesus of the Bible? Which Jesus are you talking about? These are theological statements. This is a church that has lost its theological moorings. Uh, European Christians, actually, do you know that they sort of make fun of the American church? There's, a, there's a, a great book written many years ago by a man named Oz Guinness called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. And he's talking. it's written by a European Christian who says, all you Americans care about is what you look like, your physique. You know, do you look right? Do you care nearly as much about your doctrine, about whether you think right? This is a letter for us. Do we, like the church in Pergamum, are, are we conscious about right thinking? Are we conscious about doctrine? Do we care about truth? And so when you hear Jesus saying, I know where you live, he's both saying, I know your circumstances, but I know where you are. It's got a little bit more of a tone to it than maybe we'd like. But Jesus is... It's diagnosing what I see in this passage as spiritual osteoporosis. You know, the rest of the body looks good, but the spine's not there. There's not a theological backbone to this church. And therefore, I think that we need to hear this as well. Jesus comes to this church and he has words of correction. And some of you, when you hear the word correction, you think of like, oh no, we're going to get it now, right? In the Bible, correction is always, it's not punishment. It's not for shaming. It's for cleansing. It's not for, it's not for uh, punishing someone. It's for putting them on the right track. And this is what Jesus is coming to him. He's saying, I'm coming to you and I have three things to give you. I have a sword. I have some hidden manna. And I have a stone for you. And that's my outline for this morning. We're going to look at those three things. And don't worry, a couple years ago I did preach with a sword in front of our church, just because I really wanted to. I, I had a, a double-edged broadsword. It was really fun to preach with. But I don't have one of those this morning, so you in the front row are okay. Sorry about that. Um, let's look at the sword. Twice in this passage, it mentions Jesus with a sword. And we see this in verse uh, verse 12. Jesus is described who has, is one who has the sharp double-edged sword. In verse 16, he says, I've got a sword coming out of my mouth. I'm going to come fight against you. In Revelation chapter 1 that we read, we read about Jesus who holds a sword coming, coming from his mouth. So why do we need Jesus with a sword? Why do we need Jesus with a sword? This may sound bizarre to you. God's word, God's word is described elsewhere in scripture as a sword, as something that cuts. And I would tell you that there are two reasons we need Jesus' sword, and they apply to really two different groups of people. Two reasons for two groups. First is this. 
It's a weapon for our protection. It's a weapon for our protection. It's clear that Jesus' sword coming out of his mouth is meant to guard and protect his people. He's going to fight. Look what he says here. He says, look, there's some people here that are teaching you and leading you astray. I got my sword. I'm pulling it out. I do battle for the protection and for the, the, the good of my people. And mentioned here, Jesus is protective against those who would come and like Balaam. And this is mentioned here of Balaam. Some of you who know the Old Testament might be like, oh yeah, I know who this is. Balaam was a, uh, was a false prophet. And he was hired by a, a, a king who wanted to um, fight against and destroy the people of Israel. The people of Israel are leaving Egypt in the Exodus. You know, Moses, the ten plagues, going to the promised land. And as they're on the journey, they go by the country of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, hires Balaam. And says, look, I wanna, I'm going to get you to curse these people in God's name. And three times, Balaam stands up to try to curse them and distort God's truth. And over and over again, this gets kind of foiled. And so one day, Balaam's riding his donkey down the road. And as he's riding his donkey down the road, what happens? The donkey stops, won't move any further. And he gets off and he starts just beating the foo out of this donkey. And he's beating this donkey and... Finally, God gives the donkey language. I know, okay, a little weird. But God has this donkey talk. And this donkey's saying, what are you doing? Don't you see? Don't you see what's right in front of you? And then God gives Balaam sight. And his eyes are opened and he sees an angel standing in front of him with a drawn sword ready to strike him dead. Now, why is this picture here? Those who distort God's truth bring God's wrath. This, this picture of this false prophet who would come and like kind of mess with God's words, this is the way God feels toward this. You know, we, we don't like to talk about Jesus hating something. Jesus hates some stuff. He's saying, look, I have a sword ready for those who would distort God's word. And Jesus tells the people of Pergamum, look, I have a sword. I have a sword. But his words are not just for judgment. They are for words of discipline for those who are in the church and letting this go on. You know, who don't guard the truth. The people of Pergamum had this kind of live and let live attitude. Like, oh, it's okay. My truth, your truth, whatever. Jesus took issue with that. We live in a culture that's very much like this. I would say the highest virtue within the American culture is tolerance. Tolerance is viewed as the end-all, be-all. And, and if you've ever, if, if you've, many of you have been in institutions, institutions of higher learning in the last couple of years, and you know this. You know that it's kind of like this. It's okay as if you say, I have the truth, as long as you don't say, well, my truth is better than your truth. No one can say that. That's the cardinal sin. Absolute truth is the enemy, is the enemy of our culture. To say, this is the truth, and actually it's, it is superior. This is the true, capital T, truth. That's, that's the cardinal sin. That's viewed as, that's viewed as, um, as sinful. You know, never tell anybody that they're wrong. Never tell any, anyone that they're wrong. But tolerance, while it's a good thing, can it be the ultimate thing? Tolerance, the, the, the tolerance argument always falls apart in issues of life and death. So imagine, okay, imagine one of your friends is sitting at a table and they've got two glasses in front of them. 
and they're both full of juice. One of them is all juice. One of them is juice with a little poison in it. And they're like, I'm about to drink up. And you say, no, no. Don't you know that one glass has poison in it? And your friend says, oh, no, but that's your truth. My truth is that they're both yummy juice. You'd be like, no, it's not my truth. This is a matter of life and death. I care about you. I love you. I don't want you to hurt yourself. Truth, tolerance cannot be at the top of the food chain of virtues. It's got to be subservient to some things. You know, there are a lot of people who are drinking poison today and calling it juice. There are a lot of people who are toasting my version of the truth. I know, and really, they're drinking things that are destructive. My question for you is, are you guarding the truth? Are you a guardian of the truth in other people's lives? Do you care that people are sipping poison? I want you to apply this within your home meetings. Sometimes when we get together for home meetings and we discuss a passage of Scripture and we talk about it, this is how it kind of goes. Well, I sort of feel that this is what this is saying to me. I don't care about how you feel about that. That's not the point, is how we feel about it. Or, you know, I'm not sure. This is what this says to me. No. We, when we gather around, we try to study God's word together in our home meetings. We're trying to guard the truth. We're trying to say, what's in here? What did the original writer mean? What did it mean in this context? How does it apply within the rest of scripture? And how can we help each other live it out? Are we guardians of the truth with one another? Do you view yourself with that with other people? Do you say, you know, part of my role in your life is to help you see what God reveals to us. Are you a guardian of the truth? Why else do we need Jesus with a sword? Why else do we need a Jesus who's got a sword in his hand? I will tell you this. Because you and I believe lies all the time. We believe things that aren't true all the time. If you want any evidence of this, think about this. Have you ever been in an argument with someone and you're just so convinced that you're right? Your motives are so pure. Your argument is so sound. Of course you know what you're talking about. And something happens in the argument to reveal you don't know what you're talking about. Your motives are terrible. You're actually assigning motives to the other person. This happens to me all the time. We're not just people who miscommunicate. We're people who actually tend to believe the best about ourselves and the worst about other people. We're people who regularly put on distorted views of this world. And this happens all the more in spiritual reality. We believe lies. Specifically, lies about God, lies about yourself, and lies about the world. And they're always interconnected. Let me show you how this works. Let's take some lies about God. What are some lies about God that you tend to believe? God doesn't care about me. God doesn't see this. God's eyes are closed to this one. God has removed his hand from my life. God must be asleep at the wheel. And when you start going down that road, you may not say it overtly, but deep down, that's kind of the tapes that are playing. You begin to believe lies about yourself. So... Lies about God, you know, he doesn't see us, he doesn't love us. 
Therefore, you believe lies about yourself. And you say things like this. I have to fight for what I'm going to get. No one's advocating for me. I've got to go get anything I can get. Or lies like, I must be the most blank person in the world. Fill in the blank. Unfortunate? Unloved? Upright? Righteous? Neglected? Unlucky? Where you believe lies about God, it leads to lies that you believe about yourself. Same thing with the world, okay? So let's say you believe lies about God that go this way. God's not good. God doesn't care about me. God surely is not a loving father to me. Then you begin to believe lies about the world that go like this. No one really understands me. I'm the only one who really cares about me. Do you believe some lies sometimes? See, we also have an enemy who feeds us lies. The devil. His name within scripture, Satan, literally means liar. The father of lies. Jesus said he's a liar from the very beginning. And Satan always mixes in just enough truth, just enough truth into a lie to make it go down smooth. It's like a good chaser. A little bit of, little bit of truth in every lie. A little bit of tinged you know, there, there are some things going in your life that maybe aren't so great. You're, you'll just swallow it whole. It's like drinking the juice. And so we need a Jesus who's got a sword in his hand. The sword that comes out of his mouth. The sword that cuts through what are untruths. Elsewhere in Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 4, this is how God's word is described. It is like a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing joints and marrow. Soul and spirit, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. We need God's word to come and cut through. You may not realize this, but most sin starts in the brain. A lot of us think that sin starts with desires, right? We think of, you know, we have these great desires. And surely there are, there are passages in Scripture that connect that. But you look back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and the fruit. The, the sin of Adam and And Eve, in taking the forbidden fruit, didn't begin with desire. It began with a lie. It began in the brain. A lie about God that they believed. And all sin starts in the fertile soil of a lie about who God is, and therefore who you are and what the world is like. We need a sharp sword to come and cut. To cut through all the junk that grows up that we would tend to believe. All the things that keep us from really seeing who God is. That he really is good. That he hasn't dropped the ball on you. That he is faithful. That he is at work in the world. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells the people there in that church, he said, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be prepared. Life, The life of faith is a fight. And you need some armor to put on. And you have an enemy who's coming against you, Satan. And one of the weapons that he tells them to take up, is he says, take up. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with which you can fight against, you can stand against the attack, the attacks, read lies, of the devil. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here's my question for us this morning. Are we taking up the sword? Do you take that up personally in your life? Take God's Word and pull it into your life and actually let it cut through some things. Some of you read God's Word every day, and I want to commend 
you in doing so. I am really, really glad. That's awesome if you spend time in God's Word. But are you letting it kind of, are you just kind of flipping through stuff? If you don't feel that there's a slicing, if you don't feel like there's a cutting, if you don't feel like there's stuff in your life that is being challenged, lies that are being exposed for what they are, you're not really letting this read your life. You're not letting this get in you. Take up the sword. Think about your relationships. Are you allowing God's word to penetrate soul and spirit, joints and marrow? Are you allowing it to cut? One of the challenges one of our elders, Mike Saw, has given us over the past year has been saying, do we as a church know how to minister God's word to each other? Mike grew up in a church that did so. And, and that this was a regular part of the way that the culture of their congregation. What would it be like if every time Liberty people got together for coffee, every time that Liberty people got together for lunch or dinner, that it was just a regular automatic thing that you brought a verse? Now, that may sound really contrived and weird to you. You're like, really? I'm going to pull out it and start preaching like the guy up front? No. But we're people who believe lies. Don't we need each other? Don't we need to help each other see what's true? What if every time you got together with another person from our congregation, you said, you know, here's a verse that reminds me that God's real and alive and at work in the world. Do you know how encouraging that would be? Do you know how much strength that would bring to the relationships within this room? What would it be like for us to minister God's word, to actually be, take out the sword, to be like, I'm a guardian of the truth about God in your life. Will you do that? Jesus' words for us. He comes to bring a sword. More briefly, manna. Jesus has three instruments of his correction. He says, I have a sword for you, I have a manna for I have manna for you, and I have a hidden I have a, a white stone for you. So hidden manna. In this passage, Jesus, is, Jesus promises the church he will give them hidden manna. And it goes back again to the story of Exodus. The people are leaving, the prom, leaving Egypt, going to the promised land. They're walking through a desert. They have nothing to eat. Thousands and thousands of them. And so God provides this stuff, that, like snow, that comes down and it's on the ground. It's like uh, little flakes. And they call it manna, which literally means, what is it? So they, they take this, what is it? And they make it into this kind of bread. It's, it's kind of sweet. It tastes like coriander and honey. And they make this and they eat this. And this is their sustenance as they're going through the desert. Now, Jesus comes and says, I am the manna. In John 6, he's, he stands before a crowd and says, I'm the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But if you eat on me, you will live. And so every Sunday, we come to this table. And what do we do? We eat a snack in church. Right? We eat a snack. We say, yes, I have to take Jesus into my life all the time. I'm feeding on him. It's a symbol and it's a reality of God's presence among us. But then Jesus talks about here about giving them some hidden manna. What does that mean? I wish I could say I came up with this. I'm borrowing this from someone else. Jesus says that he is the hidden manna. Now think about this with me. Obedience to God never makes sense until after you have obeyed. Obedience to God and his word never makes sense until after you've done it. 
You know, you will only taste the sweetness of God's word until after you've taken it into your life and are living it out. Not before. Faith only makes sense when you believe to the point of making this real in your life. This is the problem. We look at the Bible and we're very selective. I like this. This part smells good. It tastes good, right? So I will apply this part in my life. You know, as long as it tastes good and smells good, I'm into it. Other parts, not so good. Don't really want to do that one. So we're very selective. We go through parts of the Bible and we're like, this part makes sense to me. I will obey this part. I like this one. I don't like this other one. And when we do, we treat God's word like a buffet. A little scoop of this, a little dollop of that. I don't really want to receive it like manna. When the people were going through the desert, they didn't take part of it. They only had one thing. Let's take all of it and feed on it. Look, when you're selective with God's word, when you're like, I'm going to take parts that I like and reject other parts that I don't like, you're missing out on the sweetness of the hidden manna of God's word. You're missing out on the sweetness of what it means to obey him, to take him at his word, even parts that like are uncomfortable, that don't make sense to you, you don't like, are countercultural, that rub you the wrong way, that are bothersome, that make you weird, all those things, there's a sweetness to it. And some of you are so discouraged in your Christian life because you've been so selective. And you're like, I feel like I'm kind of starving all the time. I feel like that there's nothing nourishing about this Christian message. Sometimes I come here and I feel like i got a good snack. But is there nourishment? Is there sustenance? There is sweetness in obeying God. There is sweetness in taking all of his word and saying, regardless of how it makes me feel, I'm going to take this into my life. I'm going to take this in and hide it in my heart. To be specific, Jesus is speaking against a group of people who are abusing their freedom in the gospel. And he talks about this group called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were a group that basically was within the church saying, you know, God has set me free from sin. He's come and redeemed me. So everything's fine for me. And the Nicolaitans were really a sex cult. And they advocated, if it feels good, do it. You know, I, 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 this, this sounds like us. Two consenting adults. Everything's good here. Nobody needs to know. This is not going to hurt anybody. This is just between us. And as they were doing so, they were selectively saying, I'm going to obey parts of God's word, but not others. This is a word for our culture. We're people who, who would say, yeah, you know, I want to take in God's word, but I don't want the parts that are going to conflict with my freedom. Do you know what the word Nicolaitan means? Destroyer of souls. There are things that you will take into your life that seem to make sense. They're like, why would God not be into this? this? This seems so fun. This seems so natural. This is private. This doesn't affect anyone. And yet it's a destroyer of your soul. It's killing you. You're drinking poison. True freedom comes with a commitment to doubt yourself, your tastes, your ideas about what's right, your view of reality and saying, I'm comprehensive. This is, this is so countercultural and, and backward for us. But true freedom comes from being free from what destroys you. Will you 
Like these people say, you know, to him who has an ear to hear, I'm going to hear. I'm going to listen to what Jesus says to the churches. That's what where life is. The sword, the hidden manna, and finally the stone. Jesus writes these three things, these three tools of his correction to the church, and this one must have been so encouraging to these people. Here's a promiscuous church. Here's a church that's theologically compromised. Here's a church that's kind of sold their soul to the culture. And on one hand, they've been faithful in major ways over here, but in other ways, they've sold out. There's no discernment. There's no wisdom within this congregation. And yet, to this compromised people with divided hearts, divided loyalties, Jesus gives this word of incredible hope. He can give you a white stone. So it's a picture borrowed from the judicial system of the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, in the, if you'd go to court, the person who's on trial, would be de- their, their, their fate would be, destru- be decided, like in our court system, by a jury. And the way the jury would cast what, the vote of whether it, they're guilty or innocent, whether they're convicted or they're acquitted, was by a choice of stones. Black stone, guilty. White stone, acquitted. And Jesus writes to this morally compromised church and says, giving you the white stone. What? This is a church we know had sold out the truth, had lost their discernment. And yet, Jesus is incredibly loving to this group of people. See, the gospel tells us that God gave to Jesus the black stone of your guilt. The black stone of your guilt. Jesus, you are guilty in my sight because of the sin of these people so that we might receive the white stone. The white stone, you are innocent in my sight. You are dearly loved. You are my children. This morally compromised church needs to hear what we need to hear, which is the gospel. You know, God has every reason to come to Liberty Church and say, I know where you live. I know you people. What a miserable lot you are. And yet, look at what Jesus does. He comes to a church just like us, says, the white stone's yours. I love you. Here's grace. Allow this to penetrate. Allow this to work in your life. Allow this to help you discern what's the difference between life and death, what really matters. Therefore, as he ends this letter, he says, repent. I want to close with this illustration. I can't say this is original to me either. Some of you, some of you ladies here know what it's like to dress for an event. And, and you're dressing inside, you're putting on makeup under electric lights, and you're going to go outside for an outside, outdoor wedding or an outdoor event. And you know that dressing for interior lighting and dressing for exterior lighting, it's, it's difficult. Because you're, what looks good in the bright sunshine may not always be as obvious under the electric lights. And you go out, you might have to adjust some things, right? So this is, this is the view for us. Are we people who are living according to the lighting of this present world? Things are dim here. And, and you're dressing with what matches for this world. You're dressing what matches for this life. 
Or are we people who are dressing for a bright, brilliant light of the life to come? Are we people who are conscious of this isn't all there is? I don't need to match what looks good within this place, but am I dressing for the life and the light which is to come? What about you? God's Word is one of the greatest gifts that we have. Are you exercising this in your life? Are you allowing this to penetrate your life? Are you using this within your life? To him who has ears to hear, let him hear what God says to the seven churches. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.